evening. It's good to see you all here tonight uh, to gather around God's word and, and hear his word proclaimed. Um, I want to invite you to go ahead and turn to Isaiah chapter 7 in your Bible. Um, and I, there's copies in the seats in front of you. I did not get the page number. I'm sorry. But it's a little bit past the middle of your Bible. It's a, a big book uh, in the Old Testament, Isaiah. And we'll be in chapter 7. Uh, I think your bulletin says, verse 14, we're actually going to look at the whole chapter, and we're going to focus especially on verses 1 to 14. So as you turn there, uh, just quick recap, this morning's sermon ended with an exhortation to fix our hope on Christ in heaven, and a challenge to consider where our hope is today. And our text tonight actually confronts us with this same thing of where our hope is. Uh, the call of this passage is to rest secure in the unrelenting faithfulness of God. So if you like taking notes or if you want to know what the, the big topic is, the big idea, that's what it is. Rest secure in the unrelenting faithfulness of God. And before I get into it, I just want to give you a quick roadmap of kind of where we're going. So before reading the text, uh, I'm going to give just a little bit of historical background. We're kind of airdropping in the middle of an Old Testament prophetic book. And so there's a little bit of background I think that would be helpful. And then I want to read the text with that background. Uh, one little warning. Uh, I am not going to give equal time to every verse. And we're going to kind of land in verse 14, and then we'll pretty much stop there in verse 14. I'll make a passing comment about the rest of the chapter. But if you're watching the clock and you're seeing that we're only at verse 14, uh, don't, don't stress. I'm watching the clock too. Uh, so beware of that. And then after reading the text, uh, we're going to walk through the passage. And I, I see it unfolding in three parts, kind of three big sections of the narrative here in Isaiah 7. So those three sections will kind of guide us tonight through our time. So before we get into any of that, though, let me open in a word of prayer. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for bringing us together tonight and this opportunity we have to gather around your word and thank you that you've revealed yourself to us in creation, in, in the Bible, Lord, and most clearly and definitively in your Son, Jesus Christ. And I pray as we spend some time meditating on this passage in Isaiah and considering how it points to Christ, Lord, I pray you would open our eyes to see him clearly and that it would comfort and encourage us. And in your name, amen. Amen. So I'm going to try to avoid making this too much of a history lesson, but I just want to kind of bring two historical details to the forefront of your mind. And I kind of was able to alliterate them. One of them is the Davidic covenant, and then the other is the divided kingdom. And I know that's different letters, but it has the same sound, okay? So the Davidic covenant and the divided kingdom. So just these two details. First, uh, the passage centers on one of the kings of Judah, the king Ahaz. And he's part of the Davidic line, meaning he's one of the descendants of David. If you turn to Matthew 1, you'll see his name in the genealogy of Jesus. He's part of the Davidic line. 
And this line is significant in the Old Testament because of God's promises to David, which you can read about back in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And these promises, this covenant that God made with David was that some heir of David, some son of David was coming to establish an everlasting kingdom. So from uh, 2 Samuel 7 on, we're anticipating this coming son that's going to establish God's kingdom once and for all and who will rescue his people. So you can read more about that in 2 Samuel 7, but know just the important details, this Davidic covenant, this promise of a king is in the backdrop. And Ahaz is a part of this promise. He's in this line of David. The second thing that's important to know is that this story occurs in the world of the divided kingdom of Israel. And now uh, many of you, I'm sure, know this, For some, it's maybe a a little unfamiliar, but there's actually, uh, from the point of Solomon on, uh, the kingdom of Israel splits, and we have uh, no longer one unified kingdom, we have a divided kingdom. Uh, You can read about that in 1 Kings chapter 11. I think for the sake of time, we won't go there, but you can read how, uh, due to Solomon's sinfulness, uh, the kingdom is taken, it's, it's split apart. And the northern part of the kingdom becomes the kingdom of Israel, and the southern part becomes the kingdom of Judah. And Judah is where the the Davidic line continues. And so that all happens right after the reign of Solomon. You have the southern kingdom of Judah, where David's line is continuing, and then you have the northern kingdom of Israel. And all of these kings up here, Israel's kings, are wicked. They rebel against God. They're evil. Judah is kind of split. Mostly wicked. Some of them good. But it's important to just kind of, you'll, you'll see as we get into the text why, but there's these two kingdoms of Judah and Israel that are going to come into play. So if you want more information on that, you can check out 1 Kings 11. That kind of explains that and the following chapters kind of spell out everything that happened and how exactly that divided kingdom came about. So you have the Davidic covenant, you have the divided kingdom in the backdrop. So with those little historical details in place, I want to I read our text in full, and we'll read through, um, let's, go, let's go ahead and read the whole text. Isaiah 7, we'll start in verse 1. And Ahaz, it'll say it here in verse 1, Ahaz is the king of Judah, this southern kingdom. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jashub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. And say to him, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, And do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Remaliah. Because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah has devised evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah 
and terrify it, and let us conquer it for ourselves, and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand, and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, uh, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon the father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. In that day, the Lord will whistle for the fly that is at the end of the streams of Egypt and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria. And they will all come and settle in the steep ravines and in the clefts of the rocks and on all the thorn bushes and on all the pastures. In that day, the Lord will shave with a razor that is hired beyond the river with the king of Assyria, the head and the hair of the feet, and will sweep away the beard also. In that day, a man will keep alive a young cow and two sheep, and because of the abundance of milk that they give, he will eat curds. For everyone who is left in the land will eat curds and honey." In that day, every place where, they, where there used to be a thousand vines worth a thousand shekels of silver will become briars and thorns. With bow and arrows, a man will come there, for all the land will be briars and thorns. And as for all the hills that used to be hoed with a hoe, you will not come there for fear of briars and thorns, but they will become a place where cattle are let loose and where sheep tread." So, as we walk through this text, let's get into part one. Part one is the threat at hand. There's a threat at hand, and we need to see what it is. And we we heard it at the beginning in verses one and two. Here's the threat. Ahaz is the king of the southern kingdom of Judah. And then north of Judah, as I mentioned, you have Israel, and Pekah is their king, is, this is important, okay? So I know this is a little confusing. So you have Judah down here, you have Israel here, and then north of that, and a little bit east, this way, there's the nation of Syria. And what's happened is these two northern nations, Israel and Syria, have formed an alliance against the king of Judah. Verses 1 and 2 talk about this alliance, and then verse 5 and 6 explain what their intention is. So listen to verse 5 and 6. All right, just listen to verse 6. Here's, here's what they say. Let us go up against Judah and terrify it. Let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. So these 
two nations, these two nations above Judah, their plan is to form an alliance, come in, and wipe out the king of Judah, Ahaz, the main character in this story. There's, um, we'll, get, we'll get to that. There's a fourth nation as well. We'll get to it. But just hold this in your head. So you have Judah, Israel, Assyria, I'm sorry, Syria, and Assyria. Okay? You have four nations you're going to have to keep track of. I know it's a lot, but uh, it's very important to see how this unfolds. So you have Judah, Israel, Syria, and Assyria. Syria and Israel are trying to destroy Judah. And their plan is to wipe this king out and set up another king in his place. <laughs> if you're getting a little bogged down in the historical details, um, let, let me just give you a big picture. 30,000 view. Ahaz, the king of Judah, bad guys are trying to kill Ahaz and take his throne. Okay, that's the threat at hand. This historical stuff is important, but, but that's kind of big picture what's happening here. Ahaz is being attacked by these northern kings, and they're trying to take his throne. Now, this clearly would be concerning to Ahaz. Uh, but beyond just the concern it presents to Ahaz, it also has implications for the kingdom of Judah and the Davidic line. Remember I mentioned the Davidic covenant. Ahaz is in that line. So a threat to Ahaz is not just a threat to him and causing him to fear, but it's also seeming to present a threat to this Davidic line, this promise that God has made. So a challenge to Ahaz and his throne is ultimately a challenge to God's promise. That's the threat at hand. What would happen if God's covenant promises, what would happen to God's covenant promises if the line of David was wiped out? What if they lost their throne? So we see here there's an immediate threat to Ahaz, but there's also a more broad threat to the promise of God to provide a son of David who would establish an eternal throne and deliver God's people from their sin. It's a very real threat. And verse 2 records Ahaz's response to this threat. Look down to verse 2. It says, When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, which is talking about Israel. Ephraim is Israel. The heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. Terrified. Ahaz and the people were terrified. And we get this vivid picture of these stable, firm trees being whipped around by the wind. Maybe you saw something like that as you drove in tonight, as we have a kind of mild storm out there. But there's trees getting whipped around. That's what's going on in Ahaz's heart. He's terrified. And at this point, as we consider the threat at hand, I think it's a, a good time to ask ourselves and consider what ways we can relate to Ahaz here. He's facing a threat at hand. What very real and serious threats might we face? What things might leave our hearts shaking in the wind like Ahaz? 
You can fill in the blanks here, the empty spots, but, but here's a few ideas. There, there could be personal threats we face. Uh, it could be a, a co-worker or a boss who is for some reason set on doing harm to your career. You could have family members or friends that you're anticipating uh, spending time with this next week who are opposed to Christ, who ridicule your faith. They pro po pose a threat to you in some way. Uh, there could be things like losing a job, being unable to provide for your family. Maybe there's health concerns, sickness, disease, injury. There could also be more broad societal threats. If you spend any time uh, watching the news or scrolling through Facebook or Twitter, uh, you probably recognize that there's some problems in our world. Problems that could pose very real threat to Christians if they continue. Problems that affect schools, jobs, families, future. <clears throat> we could go on, you get the idea. There's many threats that we might face. And in all these situations, and whatever else you can think of, we're confronted with this question. What do we do in the face of very real threats? Where do we place our hope when we are in difficult situations? That's the question that confronts Ahaz in this situation, and that's the question that confronts us in every one of our situations. What do we do in light of threat and danger? So the question for Ahaz, where will he place his hope, brings us to part two of this narrative, starting in verse three. And this part I titled just the first prophecy. In light of the threat at hand, God sends Isaiah to prophesy to Ahaz to encourage him to place his hope in God. Here's how God tells Ahaz to respond to the threat. Listen to verse 4. He says, Say to him, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Remaliah. So he tells them four things. Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint. Or if we wanted to summarize it the way I did in the big idea, Ahaz is to rest secure in the faithfulness of God. And we've already touched on verse 5 and 6. They, they just reiterate the, the threat that Ahaz is facing. But look down at verse 7. <coughs> Excuse me. Look down at verse 7. Beginning in verse 7, God tells Ahaz why he can rest secure. So it's great in verse 4. He tells him, be careful, be quiet. Just, it's going to be okay. But verse 7 and on, God explains the foundation for Ahaz's hope. Why can Ahaz rest secure in God's faithfulness in this situation? Verse 7, thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand and it shall not come to pass. Speaking of this plan that the alliance has formed. For the head of Syria is Damascus and the head of Damascus is Rezin and within 65 years Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria 
is the son of Remaliah. If you are not firm in the faith, you will not be firm at all. So the plan that these countries have made, Israel and Syria, they will not work. And the sense in verse 8 and 9, this, this weird imagery, the head of Syria is Damascus. <coughs> Excuse me. The head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Ephraim is Samaria. This seems to be indicating that Rezin will be the head of only Syria, and Pekah will be the head of only Israel. In other words, these kings who are trying to grab this land of Judah, it's not going to work. They're only going to be the king of their land. They will not conquer Judah. And do you see the faithfulness of God here? He will not allow the man-made alliance of Syria and Israel to hinder his promises. He's going to foil their plans. And this point, this ought to fill Ahaz with hope. This assurance from God of Judah's safety should be a strong argument for Ahaz to rest secure in the midst of this trial. What an encouragement it can be to hear a word from God that is directly relevant to whatever trial we are facing. Right? And that's what Ahaz received here. And, and I'm sure we could all think of times we've sat in a sermon or heard teaching that directly addressed something we've been dealing with in our lives. And I'm sure that would have been a comfort to Ahaz, or it should have been. Verse 9, though, concludes with a warning to Ahaz. It says, if you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. God is calling Ahaz to trust him. And he's also warning him that if he does not trust God, he won't have any reason to feel secure. He won't be firm at all. And so this part of the story, part 2, verse 9, ends on a cliffhanger. Right? Will Ahaz trust God and stand firm, or will he not? And that brings us to part three, the second prophecy. I know my titles are very creative, so part, <laughs> part three, the second prophecy. So this begins in verse 10. Sorry. God speaks to Ahaz again in verse 10 to offer him a sign to assure Ahaz that God will be faithful to him. So look at verse 10 and 11. <coughs> again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. This is a golden opportunity for Ahaz. And if there was any doubt after what we just went through, verses 7 through 9, of God's trustworthiness. Now is Ahaz's opportunity to get God's word affirmed, to get certainty from God. God invites him to ask for anything. His, his word is as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. Just anything in between, right? As, as big of a thing as you can imagine, Ahaz, I'll do it to prove my faithfulness. And here's where we start to see that God is not just faithful, he's unrelentingly faithful. God's given the first word to Ahaz, and now he brings his word again, 
offering Ahaz anything to prove his faithfulness. We get Ahaz's response, though, in verse 12. But Ahaz said, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. He refuses God's sign. And now his reasoning might sound godly at first, right? He's saying, you won't, I won't put the Lord to the test. Um, after all, Deuteronomy 6, 16 warns against putting God to the test. Don't test the Lord your God. So is that what's going on here? Is Ahaz just displaying his deep trust for God by refusing the sign? Well, the short answer is no. And we, we, we could see that if we flipped back to uh, 2 Kings chapter 7. You don't need to flip there. I just, I just want to mention this for the sake of time. But 2 Kings chapter 17 uh, uh, tells us uh, another perspective on the same narrative. And we find there in 2 Kings that Ahaz, instead of trusting God, goes immediately to the king of Assyria. Remember that fourth nation I mentioned? If Judah, Israel, Syria, Assyria up here, Assyria has been this growing superpower that Ahaz goes to Assyria for help. That's where Ahaz finds his hope. So we see that in the book of Kings, that Ahaz rests his foreign hope in a foreign king instead of his God. But if you just look even at Isaiah, it, sh it should be evident that we don't even need to leave this text to see that Ahaz is not acting in good faith here. His, his response is not as godly as we might read it at first. If you look at verse 13, listen to how Isaiah responds to Ahaz's refusal. He says, Here then, O house of David, is, the, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Isaiah recognizes what, Isaiah, what Ahaz is doing, and he describes it as wearying to God. It isn't that Ahaz is refusing God's sign because he already trusts in God. Ahaz appears to be refusing God's sign because he wants nothing to do with God. And you'll see that bear out if you read 2 Kings 17 as well. So Ahaz's issue here is not an a lack of evidence of God's faithfulness. If, if he just didn't have enough evidence, uh, like we think about Gideon, maybe, in the book of Judges, who put his fleeces out, right? He just needed to be reassured that God was on his side. If that was Ahaz's issue, well, he could have just asked for a sign. But we see by his refusal, that's not his issue. His issue is that he has a rebellious heart that's set against God. So what he needs then is not more evidence. What he needs is a new heart. And this might challenge us at some points, right? When we consider God's revelation that, that we get to see both in creation and the world around us, in our own lives, and even more clearly in the Bible, God's written word for us, we have no shortage of evidence of God's faithfulness. It's, it's impossible to read the story of the Bible without seeing over and over again God's faithfulness. But apart from Christ, we suffer from the same issue as Ahaz. We have sinful hearts that reject God, not for lack of evidence, but because we have evil hearts that want to do what we want to do rather than what God calls us 
to do. So that brings us then to verse 14, the sign of Emmanuel. Now, before advancing too far into verse 14, I just want to acknowledge uh, there's a little bit of a fork in the road at this verse that I just want to nod my head to before we, we, we go down one of these roads. Um, and this fork is where smart, faithful, conservative, Bible-believing interpreters uh, go down slightly different paths for how best to understand this prophecy. So I want to proceed with humility. I want to recognize there's lots of difficult factors at play, things to consider, and we're not going to go into a deep dive on all of these factors. So here's the plan. I just want to briefly mention two of these paths that faithful interpreters go down and just nod my head towards one, and then we're going to go down the other one because I think that's where the text is driving us. As, as far as I can tell, based on my understanding and, uh, and, and what uh, the text is pointing us towards, I think uh, one of these options is, is faithful to, to what the text says. And I think that godly people are going to disagree slightly on, on how it all works out. But uh, let's, let's do that. I'll try to, try to briefly present one of these other views, though. So one view is that there's let me read verse 14 real quickly, just so we have it in our minds. It says, therefore, the Lord himself, so this is God speaking to Ahaz, says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Okay, so that's the verse in question. One view is that there's kind of a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment. And that's this idea that there's some virgin, some woman in the time of Ahaz that gave birth to some child that showed that God was going to be faithful and deliver Ahaz from the threat at hand. And so as for who that child is, some people have different suggestions from the text. If you read chapter 8, uh, you'll notice that there is a, a son who's born, and there's language about Emmanuel surrounding him. This is the son of Isaiah. Um, so some people see this near fulfillment, and then ultimately it pointing to Christ. Okay, so that's one option. Some people see that. Uh, those who hold this view typically look at that word virgin as it's translated in our Bible, and uh, they see it as having a more broad meaning, not, not just what we would understand to be a virgin, but just young women in general. Okay, so that's one way that people take this. Another view is that this prophecy is a direct prophecy of the virgin birth of Jesus, and there's no historical fulfillment. And I believe that is the view at this point that makes the most sense of this text. So while there does appear to be some ambiguity in the way virgin is translated, uh, it's worth noting both the Hebrew, uh, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament and Matthew in that passage we read from Matthew 1, they use a Greek word that clearly means virgin. Everyone agrees that Greek word means virgin. And so the translators from a few hundred years after this was written and the inspired author of scripture, Matthew, both seem to think that this word is best translated virgin. 
There doesn't seem to be clear evidence against that. And if that's correct, if this really is what we would understand to be a virgin, it's really difficult to find anyone in this text who it could refer to other than Jesus. I also mentioned a minute ago that Ahaz, his rebellious rejection of the sign is not because he doesn't have enough evidence, right? It doesn't seem like more evidence. It doesn't seem like some miraculous sign in Ahaz's day would actually do him much good because he has an issue. He has a heart issue. He's rejected God's word. He doesn't want a sign. So it's hard to imagine that some miracle would actually do him much good at this point. So then, seeing this as direct future prophecy of the virgin birth of Jesus seems like the best road to go down. So in conclusion, this is where we'll land. So what does this sign mean? Well, I want you to notice first that there's a slight shift in focus from verse 11 to verse 13. And you might not catch it at first, but if you have an ESV like this one, there's a little uh, footnote under the word your in verse 11 indicating that that word is singular. And so in verse 11, Isaiah is addressing only Ahaz. It's a personal addressing Ahaz. But if you listened, if you heard in verse 13, he actually kind of broadens. He's no longer focusing on just Ahaz. He broadens and he says, here then, O house of David. There's this broader shift to no longer is he only focused on Ahaz, He wants us to be thinking about the house of David in general, the Davidic line that we've talked about some. So he's now addressing the line as a whole. Ahaz has rejected God and his word in a way that's been very typical of the line of David and of God's people all through their history. So in response to this typical rebellion, God will intervene in a dramatic way. Despite the repeated failures of the Davidic line, God will keep his promises to David through the miraculous birth of a baby whose name would mean God with us or God is with us, Emmanuel, what we sang about. This virgin's baby will be how God will deal with the problem of his people's repeated unfaithfulness, which was just illustrated once again with Ahaz. And Ahaz, this unfaithful king who's rejected God's word, he gets to hear about it. He gets to hear about this coming king, this virgin birth, which once again shows God's unrelenting Faithfulness, Because on the one hand, it's an indictment against Ahaz and the whole Davidic line, right? God is saying, you guys have failed to be faithful. You've messed up. I'm going to send a child born of a virgin. But on the other hand, this prophecy that Ahaz gets to hear, it's a prophecy of unbelievable hope, right? Despite the prophecy not being fulfilled from Ahaz's point of view for another 700 years, the assurance from God of its ultimate fulfillment guarantees that Ahaz's line will not be destroyed. So it is relevant to him. 
But it's not just about God's unrelenting faithfulness to Ahaz. This prophecy assures us as well, God's people in general, of his unrelenting faithfulness to us and to his promises. Foreign threats and unfaithful kings will not get in the way of God's promises. What God says, he will do. So this text stands before us today as a loud call to rest secure in the unrelenting faithfulness of God. And the best part of it for us is we're actually on the other side of the fulfillment of this prophecy. The people of God in Ahaz's time would have had to wait another seven centuries plus to see God's prophecies come to fruition. They would have had to endure more unfaithful kings and exile and hardship. In fact, even the rest of Isaiah 7 outlines some of the difficulty that would come as a result of Ahaz's decision. That's all those in that days that we're, we're not going to talk about more than that. Outlines some of the devastation that's going to come as a result of Ahaz putting his trust in Assyria rather than in God. But we get to see the fulfillment of this prophecy in the birth of Jesus Christ. And whether you're with me on the it only talking about Christ or you feel like there is some uh, historic fulfillment, we all need to confess it points to Christ because that's where Matthew lands with it. Is this, this prophecy ultimately points to Christ. And we get to see clearly that God himself took on our humanity and he lived among us. And we get to see that God dealt with sin decisively in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So let me conclude where we started the service with the words of, a Ma- of Matthew over in Matthew 1. And I just want to encourage you to think about, as we, as we move on to our next phase here and as you, you all go home, I want you to think about where God may be calling you to rest secure in his unrelenting Faithfulness, And I want you to hear, hopefully in a slightly new light, uh, this prophecy fulfilled in, Isaiah, or in Matthew 1, 18 to 23. It says, Now the birth of Jesus took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Let me pray. God, thank you for your unrelenting faithfulness. And Lord, as we all face challenges in life and we're confronted with the question of where we'll place our hope and where we will 
find our confidence and safety and protection, Lord. I pray that this reminder of your faithfulness and your your uh, persistent, unrelenting faithfulness would encourage us and that it would bless us. And as we see it fulfilled ultimately in Christ, Lord, I pray that you would just encourage everyone with this passage. And in your name, amen.